This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Souls of Black Folk by W. E. B. Du Bois. Music and Text Recorded by Toria's Uncle. Chapter 5 Of the Wings of Atalanta. O black boy of Atlanta, but half was spoken. The slaves' chains and the masters alike are broken. The one curse of the races held both in tether. They are rising, all are rising, the black and white together. Whittier South of the north, yet north of the south, lies the city of a hundred hills, peering out from the shadows of the past into the promise of the future. I have seen her in the morning, when the first flush of day had half roused her. She lay gray and still on the crimson soil of Georgia. Then the blue smoke began to curl from her chimneys. The tinkle of bell and scream of whistle broke the silence. The rattle and roar of busy life slowly gathered and swelled until the seething whirl of the city seemed a strange thing in a sleepy land. Once, they say, even Atlanta slept, dull and drowsy, at the foothills of the Alleghanies, until the iron baptism of war awakened her with its sudden waters, aroused and maddened her, and left her listening to the sea. And the sea cried to the hills, and the hills answered the sea, till the city rose like a widow and cast away her weeds, and toiled for her daily bread, toiled steadily, toiled cunningly, perhaps with some bitterness, with a touch of reclame, and yet with real earnestness and real sweat. It is a hard thing to live haunted by the ghost of an untrue dream, to see the wide vision of empire fade into real ashes and dirt, to feel the pang of the conquered, and yet know that with all the bad that fell on one black day something was vanquished that deserved to live. Something killed that, in justice, had not dared to die. To know that with the right that triumphed, triumphed something of wrong, something sordid and mean, something less than the broadest and best. All this is bitter hard, and many a man and city and people have found in it excuse for sulking and brooding and listless waiting. Such are not men of the sturdier make. They of Atlanta turned resolutely toward the future, and that future held aloft vistas of purple and gold. Atlanta, queen of the cotton kingdom. Atlanta, gateway to the land of the sun. Atlanta, the new Lachesis, spinner of web and woof for the world. So the city crowned her hundred hills with factories, and stored her shops with cunning handiwork, and stretched long iron ways to greet the busy Mercury in his coming. And the nation talked of her striving. Perhaps Atlanta was not christened for the winged maiden of Dolbiotia. You know the tale. How swarthy Atlanta, tall and wild, would marry only him who outraced her. 
and how the wily Hippomenes laid three apples of gold in the way. She fled like a shadow, paused, startled over the first apple, but even as he stretched his hand, fled again, hovered over the second, then, slipping from his hot grasp, flew over river, vale, and hill. But as she lingered over the third, his arms fell round her, and looking on each other the blazing passion of their love profaned the sanctuary of love, and they were cursed. If Atlanta be not named for Atalanta, she ought to have been. Atalanta is not the first or the last maiden whom greed of gold has led to defile the temple of love, and not maids alone but men in the race of life sink from the high and generous ideals of youth to the gambler's code of the burse. And in all our nation's striving is not the gospel of work befouled by the gospel of pay? So common is this that one half think it normal, so unquestioned that we almost fear to question if the end of racing is not gold, if the aim of man is not rightly to be rich. And if this is the fault of America, how dire a danger lies before a new land and a new city, lest Atlanta, stooping for mere gold, shall find that gold accursed. It was no maiden's idle whim that started this hard racing. A fearful wilderness lay about the feet of that city after the war. Feudalism, poverty, the rise of the third estate, serfdom, the rebirth of law and order, and above and between all the veil of race. How heavy a journey for weary feet! What wings must Atalanta have to flit over all this hollow and hill, through sour wood and sullen water, and by the red waste of sun-baked clay? How fleet must Atalanta be if she will not be tempted by gold to profane the sanctuary? The sanctuary of our fathers has, to be sure, few gods, some sneer all too few. There is the thrifty Mercury of New England, Pluto of the North, and Ceres of the West, and there, too, is the half-forgotten Apollo of the South, under whose aegis the maiden ran, and as she ran forgot him, even as there in Boeotia Venus was forgot. She forgot the old ideal of the southern gentleman, that new world heir of the grace and courtliness of patrician, knight, and noble, forgot his honor with his foibles, his kindliness with his carelessness, and stooped to apples of gold, to men busier and sharper, thriftier, and more unscrupulous. Golden apples are beautiful. I remember the lawless days of boyhood when orchards in crimson and gold tempted me over fence and field. And, too, the merchant who has dethroned the planter is no despicable parvenu. Work and wealth are the mighty levers to lift this old new land. Thrift and toil and saving are the highways to new hopes and new possibilities. And yet the warning is needed lest the wily Hippomenes tempt Atalanta to thinking that golden apples are the goal of racing, and not mere incidents by the way. Atlanta must not lead the South to dream of material prosperity as the touchstone of all success. Already the fatal might of this idea is beginning to spread. It is replacing the finer type of Southerner with vulgar money-getters. It is burying the sweeter beauties of Southern life beneath pretense and ostentation. For every social ill the panacea of wealth has been urged, wealth to overthrow the remains of the slave feudalism, wealth to raise the cracker third estate, wealth to employ the black serfs, and the prospect of wealth to keep them working, wealth as the end and aim of politics, and as the legal tender for law and order, and finally, instead of truth, beauty, and goodness, 
wealth as the ideal of the public school. Not only is this true in the world which Atlanta typifies, but it is threatening to be true of a world beneath and beyond that world, the black world beyond the veil. Today it makes little difference to Atlanta, to the South, what the Negro thinks or dreams or wills. In the soul life of the land he is today and naturally will long remain unthought of, half forgotten. And yet when he does come to think and will and do for himself, and let no man dream that day will never come, then the part he plays will not be one of sudden learning, but words and thoughts he has been taught to lisp in his race childhood. Today the ferment of his striving toward self-realization is to the strife of the white world like a wheel within a wheel. Beyond the veil are smaller but like problems of ideals, of leaders and the lead, of serfdom, of poverty, of order and subordination, and through all the veil of race. Few know of these problems, few who know notice them, and yet there they are, awaiting student, artist, and seer, a field for somebody sometime to discover. Hither has the temptation of Hippomenes penetrated. Already in this smaller world, which now indirectly and anon directly must influence the larger for good or ill, the habit is forming of interpreting the world in dollars. The old leaders of Negro opinion, in the little groups where there is a Negro social consciousness, are being replaced by new. Neither the black preacher nor the black teacher leads as he did two decades ago. Into their places are pushing the farmers and gardeners, the well-paid porters and artisans, the businessmen, all those with property and money. And with all this change, so curiously parallel to that of the other world, goes to the same inevitable change in ideals. The South laments today the slow, steady disappearance of a certain type of Negro, the faithful, courteous slave of other days with his incorruptible honesty and dignified humility. He is passing away just as surely as the old type of Southern gentleman is passing, and from not dissimilar causes. The sudden transformation of a fair, far-off ideal of freedom into the hard reality of breadwinning and the consequent deification of bread. In the black world, the preacher and teacher embodied once the ideals of this people, the strife for another and a juster world, the vague dream of righteousness, the mystery of knowing. But today the danger is that these ideals, with their simple beauty and weird inspiration, will suddenly sink to a question of cash and a lust for gold. Here stands this black young Atalanta, girding herself for the race that must be run, and if her eyes be still toward the hills and sky as in the days of old, then we may look for noble running. But what if some ruthless or wily or even thoughtless Hippomenes lay golden apples before her? What if the Negro people be wooed from a strife for righteousness, from a love of knowing, to regard dollars as the be-all and end-all of life? What if to the mammonism of America be added the rising mammonism of the reborn South, and the mammonism of this South be reinforced by the budding mammonism of its half-wakened black millions? Whither, then, is the new world quest of goodness and beauty and truth gone glimmering? Must this and that fair flower of freedom, which, despite the jeers of latter-day striplings, sprung from our father's blood, must that too degenerate into a dusty quest of gold, into lawless lust with Hippomenes?
The hundred hills of Atlanta are not all crowned with factories. On one toward the west, the setting sun throws three buildings in bold relief against the sky. The beauty of the group lies in its simple unity, a broad lawn of green rising from the red street and mingled roses and peaches, north and south, two plain and stately halls, and in the midst, half-hidden in ivy, a larger building, boldly graceful, sparingly decorated, and with one low spire. It is a restful group, one never looks for more. It is all here, all intelligible. There I live, and there I hear from day to day the low hum of restful life. In winter's twilight, when the red sun glows, I can see the dark figures pass between the halls to the music of the night bell. In the morning, when the sun is golden, the clang of the day-bell brings the hurry and laughter of three hundred young hearts from hall and street and from the busy city below, children all dark and heavy-haired, to join their clear young voices in the music of the morning sacrifice. In a half-dozen classrooms they gather then, here to follow the love-song of Dido, here to listen to the tale of Troy divine, there to wander among the stars, there to wander among men and nations and elsewhere other well-worn ways of knowing this queer world. Nothing new, no time-saving devices, simply old-time glorified methods of delving for truth and searching out the hidden beauties of life and learning the good of living. The riddle of existence is the college curriculum that was laid before the pharaohs, that was taught in the groves by Plato, that formed the trivium and quadrivium, and is today laid before the freedmen's sons by Atlanta University. And this course of study will not change. Its methods will grow more deft and effectual, its content richer by toil of scholar and sight of seer, but the true college will ever have one goal, not to earn meat, but to know the end and aim of that life which meat nourishes. The vision of life that rises before these dark eyes has in it nothing mean or selfish. Not at Oxford or at Leipzig, not at Yale or Columbia, is there an air of higher resolve or more unfettered striving. The determination to realize for men, both black and white, the broadest possibilities of life, to seek the better and the best, to spread with their own hands the gospel of sacrifice, all this is the burden of their talk and dream. Here, amid a wide desert of caste and proscription, amid the heart-hurting slights and jars and vagaries of a deep race dislike, lies this green oasis where hot anger cools and the bitterness of disappointment is sweetened by the springs and breezes of Parnassus. And here men may lie and listen and learn of a future fuller than the past and hear the voice of time. And beren sollst du, sollst and beren. They made their mistakes, those who planted Fisk and Howard and Atlanta, before the smoke of battle had lifted. They made their mistakes. But those mistakes were not the things at which we lately laughed somewhat uproariously. They were right when they sought to found a new educational system upon the university. Where, forsooth, shall we ground knowledge, save on the broadest and deepest knowledge? The roots of the tree, rather than the leaves, are the sources of its life. And from the dawn of history, from Academus to Cambridge, the culture of the university has been the broad foundation stone on which is built the kindergarten's ABC. But these builders did make a mistake in minimizing the gravity of the problem before them. 
in thinking it a matter of years and decades, in therefore building quickly and laying their foundation carelessly, and lowering the standard of knowing, until they had scattered haphazard through the South some dozen poorly equipped high schools, and miscalled them universities. They forgot, too, just as their successors are forgetting, the rule of inequality, that of the million black youth some were fitted to know and some to dig, that some had the talent and capacity of university men, and some the talent and capacity of blacksmiths, and that true training meant neither that all should be college men nor all artisans, but that the one should be made a missionary of culture to an untaught people, and the other a free workman among serfs. And to seek to make the blacksmith a scholar is almost as silly as the more modern scheme of making the scholar a blacksmith. Almost, but not quite. The function of the university is not simply to teach breadwinning, or to furnish teachers for the public schools, or to be a center of polite society. It is above all to be the organ of that fine adjustment between real life and the growing knowledge of life, an adjustment which forms the secret of civilization. Such an institution the South of today sorely needs. She has religion, earnest, bigoted, religion that on both sides of the veil often omits the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments, but substitutes a dozen supplementary ones. She has, as Atlanta shows, growing thrift and love of toil, but she lacks that broad knowledge of what the world knows and knew of human living and doing, which she may apply to the thousand problems of real life today confronting her. The need of the South is knowledge and culture, not in dainty limited quantity as before the war, but in broad busy abundance in the world of work, and until she has this not all the apples of Hesperides, be they golden and bejeweled, can save her from the curse of the Boeotian lovers. The wings of Atalanta are the coming universities of the South. They alone can bear the maiden past the temptation of golden fruit. They will not guide her flying feet away from the cotton and gold, for, ah, thoughtful Hippomenes, do not the apples lie in the very way of life? But they will guide her over and beyond them, and leave her kneeling in the sanctuary of truth and freedom and broad humanity, virgin and undefiled. Sadly did the Old South err in human education, despising the education of the masses, and niggardly in the support of colleges. Her ancient university foundations dwindled and withered under the foul breath of slavery, and even since the war they have fought a failing fight for life in the tainted air of social unrest and commercial selfishness, stunted by the death of criticism, and starving for lack of broadly cultured men. And if this is the white South's need and danger, how much heavier the danger and need of the freedmen's sons! How pressing here the need of broad ideals and true culture, the conservation of soul from sordid aims and petty passions! Let us build the Southern University! William and Mary, Trinity, Georgia, Texas, Tulane, Vanderbilt, and the others, fit to live! Let us build, too, the Negro universities. Fisk, whose foundation was ever broad. Howard, at the heart of the nation. Atlanta, at Atlanta, whose ideal of scholarship has been held above the temptation of numbers. Why not here, and perhaps elsewhere, plant deeply and for all time centers of learning and living, colleges that yearly would send into the life of the South a few white men and a few black men 
of broad culture, catholic tolerance, and trained ability, joining their hands to other hands and giving to this squabble of the races a decent and dignified peace. Patience, humility, manners, and taste, common schools and kindergartens, industrial and technical schools, literature and tolerance, all these spring from knowledge and culture, the children of the university. So must men and nations build, not otherwise, not upside down. Teach workers to work, a wise saying, wise when applied to German boys and American girls, wiser when said of Negro boys, for they have less knowledge of working and none to teach them. Teach thinkers to think, a needed knowledge in a day of loose and careless logic, and they whose lot is gravest must have the carefulest training to think aright. If these things are so, how foolish to ask what is the best education for one or seven or sixty million souls. Shall we teach them trades or train them in liberal arts? Neither and both. Teach the workers to work and the thinkers to think. Make carpenters of carpenters and philosophers of philosophers and fops of fools. Nor can we pause here. We are training not isolated men, but a living group of men, nay, a group within a group. And the final product of our training must be neither a psychologist nor a brick mason, but a man. And to make men we must have ideals, broad, pure, and inspiring ends of living, not sordid money-getting, not apples of gold. The worker must work for the glory of his handiwork, not simply for pay. The thinker must think for truth, not for fame. And all this is gained only by human strife and longing, by ceaseless training and education, by founding right on righteousness and truth on the unhampered search for truth, by founding the common school on the university and the industrial school on the common school, and weaving thus a system, not a distortion, and bringing a birth, not an abortion. When night falls on the city of a hundred hills, a wind gathers itself from the seas and comes murmuring westward, and at its bidding the smoke of the drowsy factories sweeps down upon the mighty city and covers it like a pall, while yonder at the university the stars twinkle above Stone Hall. And they say that yon gray mist is the tunic of Atalanta, pausing over her golden apples. Fly, my maiden, fly, for yonder comes Hippomenes. End of chapter 5